Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. By the way, you can also get the premium service on Substack, contrarianpod.substack.com. Exact same benefits, exact same price. This particular episode is brought to you by the Connecticut Economic Literacy Initiative. Do you know a young person aged 8 through 15 interested in learning about the stock market? What about learning how to budget and make money in ways that schools don't teach? How about why countries are rich or poor? What about the economy? What if you could learn all of this while also competing for cash prizes? Two high school students have launched the Connecticut Economic Literacy Initiative in order to explore these concepts and many more. This program is not exclusive to Connecticut. It is entirely virtual, open to anybody aged 8 through 15 who has a high-speed internet connection and can join on Zoom. It's 100% free and 100% virtual, consisting of activities like groups of buyers and sellers, trade simulations, budgeting, and stock picking activities with cash prizes for winners, and much more. So visit the CELI on Facebook or Twitter at CT Econ Literacy for more information. I am here with God Levinon. He is the head of the Labor Market Institute at the Conference Board in Princeton, New Jersey. Very excited to have him on. We are going to talk about wage growth, employment, the economy, and what this means potentially for the economic cycle and for Fed interest rate policies. And God here has some pretty contrarian views where wages are concerned, specifically that wage pressure due to low unemployment rates are likely to begin earlier this cycle than in other expansions and take hold much more quickly. As we record this, the unemployment rate is around 5.5% in the US. So we're not all that far from what is considered full employment. But let me kick it over to God and tell us his views on this and to get us up to date on it. Thank you for having me, Nathaniel. Much appreciate. Thanks for coming on. The main point where I probably differ from a lot of forecasts, forecasters is the concern about long-term labor shortages. So we are now in a period where we have the most severe labor shortages in, in recent memory, but those are probably partly temporary. We have a kind of a low of 
a lot of um, factors that are disrupting the supply of labor, like uh, high unemployment benefits and the fear of getting infected and childcare issues. But hopefully those uh, obstacles are going to go away in, in a few months. Uh, and, and then we'll probably see less severe labor shortages. But I think uh, the main point is that because of uh, unusual demographic and educational trends, I'm expecting uh, labor shortages, especially in blue collar and manual services jobs to be the kind of the new normal until the next uh, uh, recession. And that would mean that uh, th- those types of jobs will see a fast wage growth uh, for the foreseeable future. Maybe let me talk a little about why I uh, think this. So I think it's uh, well known that the working age population in the US is, is uh, barely growing. In fact, in 2020, it declined for the first time in, in US history. And it's expected to barely grow for the rest of the decade. So I, I think a lot of people know that. but. What is less known is that this overall story masks two opposite trends by education. So if you look at the number of uh, people in the working age with a BA, that uh, number is growing continuously at about 2% a year, even more. And this is what we expect to see in the coming decade as well. But the number of people in the working age population without a BA, that number is shrinking already in the past five years or so. It's been shrinking and it will continue to shrink. And the reason is that uh, over time, more and more people are graduating from college and the new people entering the labor force are much more educated than the people who are exiting the labor force because of their retirement. So, so the number of people with a BA is continuing to grow and the number of people without a BA is shrinking. Now, the, uh, why is it important for the labor market is that people with a BA are rarely going to work in blue color and manual services jobs. You rarely see a truck driver with a BA or a plumber or a cook. Uh, so uh, those jobs- Did you see waiters? But you do see waiter, yeah. You, you do see some. It's not zero, but you see, uh, for the most part, people with a BA aspire to different types of uh, careers. That means that the people who are willing to work in those blue-collar and manual services jobs, their number is shrinking. And and that if uh, if this number is shrinking faster than the number of jobs needed in in those categories, then that will create a continuous uh, shortage, which was already the case before the pandemic. Uh, In 2018, 2019, we had the blue collar labor shortages and much faster wage growth in those types of jobs than kind of in the professional managerial uh, class. So so I think that is likely to continue to be the case uh, for the rest of the decade. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, on the one hand kind of disconcerting because it is going to, of course, drive up the cost of these these services like plumbing and electrical work and anything else, construction, right? Yeah. Um, so that's that's going to make which is going to make things more difficult. One would think for economic expansion in certain ways. On the the good news is that you don't have to go to college then to earn a living wage. You can 
learn a trade, um, of course, this may not be good news for upwardly mobile families, but that, that is the reality. But anyway, that, that aside, talk to me a little bit about uh, yeah, some of the some of the other uh, effects of this that, that you, you you're anticipating of yeah. this this labor shortage. So I, I think uh, kind of in, in the context of wages, what we've seen already in recent years, and we I think continue to see, is uh, well. Let, let me back up a little. Throughout most of the recent decades, wages of highly educated people grew faster, sometimes much faster than for people without a BA. But that changed around 2015, 2016. And since then you see the opposite trend. Mm. Uh, people without a BA in types of jobs like blue collar manual services, earning, uh, seeing a faster wage growth than uh, the more educated professional type. So I, I think um, that will continue. I think, um, Overall, wages will rise uh, faster, and I think that that has several uh, implications. Uh, one for corporate profits, you know, other things equally. When labor cost goes up, profits go down, uh, unless they uh, pass the cost to the consumer, which is another option that this will end up in uh, higher inflation. I think because of what I said earlier, that the impact of this will vary by industry. So industries that have a lot of blue color and manual services uh, workers will see a bigger impact than industries that mostly hire uh, white color, uh, you know, uh, consulting, uh, finance, uh, tech. Although tech is a separate thing because tech, uh, because of the huge growth in the tech sector, there are, um, they have their own recruiting problems there. Yes, so I, I think those companies, those industries are going to see a higher impact, a bigger squeeze on corporate profits and perhaps a bigger increase in consumer prices. That thing brings to mind places like Amazon, if you think about it. But anyway, not to mention any specific companies. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. There is some, a lot of maybe one trend that could help this is automation. And, uh, you know, a lot of machines taking over a lot of the more manual tasks. I mean, we mentioned truck driving, self-driving cars are still a ways away, but eventually, if we're talking 10 years, that could happen. But then other, other advances in technology could make some of these more labor-intensive jobs obsolete, right? What do you yeah. think about that? So I know that's definitely a, an option that could happen. Uh, I would say we are, the decade before the pandemic was very disappointing in this regard. We had the, in the 10 years before the pandemic, we had the slowest labor productivity growth, which is related to automation. Uh, we had the lowest labor productivity growth in, uh, in uh, probably in US history had a lot of the low-hanging fruit of uh, replacing workers with technology apparently took place before that. So, for example, in manufacturing, in, in the past decade, there was almost no growth in labor productivity in manufacturing. Now, so, so I think like one has to be skeptical about the ability to 
have massive amounts of automation. But I, I think there is a chance that it would happen. I think that the fact that we have such a severe labor shortage now is uh, incentivizing uh, employers to, to look for other ways to produce with fewer workers. I think also perhaps the, the shift to online activity in, in many sectors and including work could also um, eliminate some jobs that are no longer needed. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, productivity and automation is a wild card. If, it, if uh, there is a major improvement there, then I think the, the problem of uh, labor shortages will be smaller. But if we kind of continue as we did in the past decade, then I think uh, it's going to be a very severe uh, problem. I, I would say that there are other U.S. companies are very, very resourceful. And, and one thing that they did before the pandemic that uh, we probably see again is that they tapped uh, populations that before were more were less connected to the labor market. So in the two, three years before the pandemic, we saw a large increase in the participation rate, the labor force participation rates of, for example, Hispanic women. They uh, are probably the group that is has the least, um, the smallest participation rate, and they've seen a very uh, big jump in that before the pandemic. Also, uh, the black population uh, became more connected to the labor market. So that's that's one thing that uh, could help. And another is immigration. And um, I mean, I, 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 it's a very complex uh, topic, mm. uh, but uh, and one could have opinions pro and con, but from the perspective of labor shortages, I think it's obviously more immigrants is uh, is going to reduce the problem. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And last word on automation. Anybody who's ever owned a Roomba device will know that there's not really very much to be afraid of there because those things really don't work very well. And they supposedly have all this AI built in and they just kind of drive around on the floor and, and kick up dust and don't do anything. So... Um, we, we have that kind of going for blue collar workers, I guess. Cleaning houses, by the way, cleaning is one of those things that I, I don't see how you'll ever be able to replace it. But anyway, yeah. All right, moving on here, how, how close are we to reaching full employment? Like I mentioned at the outset, we're 5.5% now. Things are clearly trending in the right direction. They were pre-COVID as well. And you think we'll get there sooner than, than most. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, I think when uh, in late uh, 2020, when... Uh, the vaccines were discovered. They were discovered quicker than expected, and they were much more effective than anyone anticipated. I think so. That changed the, the outlook uh, significantly. Um, yeah, in in previous uh, after previous recessions, it, it took probably four to seven years from the beginning of the recession until we got back to what's called the natural rate of unemployment, which is now estimated around 4.5%. I think we are probably going to be in this territory probably less than a year from now. We have a very strong growth. We are already at 5.4%. So I think we'll get there like around the middle of, uh, uh, of 2022, which is about two years after the beginning of the recession. And so I, we will get there uh, much faster than, than usual. If, if history is any guide, like once an unemployment rate starts declining, 
it usually keeps declining until the next recession. Moderately, like it's not uh, declining as fast as in the beginning, but it continues. Like you look at every economic expansion, the unemployment rate is almost continuously declining. So we probably, and, and, and the next recession could be uh, five, 10 years from now. Uh, the expansions are getting uh, longer. Uh, we know how to manage business cycle better. We're still not perfect, but uh, <laughs> central banks are, are getting better at this. So we could be, you know, have five, 10 years ahead of us with uh, declining unemployment rates, which will uh, gradually continue to, to tighten the labor market uh, further and further. Mm, very interesting. And a lot of these trends and these things that you speak of are not solved with monetary devices, right? Like the Fed can raise rates or lower rates as much as they want. If there's no workers, if the supply and demand imbalance with workers is such, you're still going to be paying a lot, right? You know, so what does that say for the next stage once they do start tightening? Well, you know, the, the Fed, they have uh, their own tool of uh, interest rates and the way they can the way they will fight it is essentially to slow the economy mm-hmm. through through the interest of the you know housing sector first and other interest rate sensitive uh, industries will uh, suffer a lot and and that will gradually slow down the economy but i, I think what that uh, means is that uh, kind of this labor shortage because of the fed commitment to to prevent inflation the labor shortages will determine or, or the growth in the labor force is the thing that is going to determine the pace of economic growth in the next decade and could be a, a real constraint. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And again, that's not anything that they'll be able to do around monetary policy with that. I mean, so, yeah. They will not solve the, the problem, the specific problem. They'll just kind of use their big hammer to simply slow down the economy. They can't do anything, I think, to specifically solve the problem of lack of shortages. That's, I Mm. think, more the governments can do Mm. by, for example, uh, raising immigration. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Very good, all right, God, Lebanon, I wanna take a short break, give our sponsors a chance to make themselves heard and come back and ask you some more questions. Uh, If you are a premium subscriber, don't touch the dial, you will not get the break. To become a premium subscriber, you can go to the website contrarianpod.super, wait, no, substack.com and sign up or contrarian.supercast.tech, T-E-C-H. We'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. The Connecticut Economic Literacy Initiative is not exclusive to Connecticut. 
Any person ages 8 through 15 is welcome to join the programs on Zoom. It's 100% free, 100% virtual, consisting of activities such as groups of buyers and sellers, trade simulations, budgeting, and stock picking activities with a prize for the winner, and much more. Visit the CELI on Facebook or Twitter at CT Econ Literacy for more information. All right, welcome back, everybody. God loving on here. Uh, he is head of labor markets, the Labor Markets Institute at the Conference Board. God, this is the section of the podcast of the episode where we talk to our guests a little more about their background, their professional background, how they came to their station in life. So curious about what uh, what your what path you took. Well, as maybe as you can tell by my accent, I, I wasn't born in the U.S. <laughs> I uh, am Israeli. I was born and raised in uh, Israel, and I did my um, undergrad and master's uh, in Tel Aviv University um, in Israel, and I also worked in the Israeli Central Bank for a couple of years. Then uh, everyone told me that if I want to do a PhD, I should come to the U.S., so I came and did my uh, PhD in economics here, met my wife, so decided to stay in the US. <laughs> and, um, and actually, uh, my first and only job since then is, um, has been at the conference board. Um, maybe I, I should tell the listeners uh, a little about the conference. Yeah. So the, the conference board is a, a member a membership uh, organization, a think tank. So, uh, we are, our members are uh, many of the largest companies in the world, and we provide uh, research for them, insights for what's ahead, and also convene them in various ways. Um, so, yeah, so I've been there in the economics department, uh, and you know, over time, uh, we realized that um, the topic of labor markets is very important because it's a uh, the two largest uh, research areas at the conference board are uh, economics and uh, human capital and labor market sits right in between. So there is a lot of interest from many businesses, but uh, many business um, professionals, but uh, I would say especially from the HR community that are, of course, interested in everything related to workforce and and, and labor. So. Uh, um, so yeah, so that's what I've been doing, and I'm now the head of the Labor Market Institute at uh, the Conference Board. Very interesting. You know, this all begs the question: with all this uh, human capital and labor costs and stuff, what do you what do you make of the whole remote work trend, and what are you seeing there, and how do you think that could impact things? Yeah, I think this is the biggest legacy of the COVID nineteen mm. in uh, in the context of the economy and the labor markets. Uh, this is a, a huge shift. So if, let's say, before the pandemic, uh, maybe 7% of office-related jobs were done remotely, this in the post-pandemic could easily be 30% or even more. Um, and 30% uh, were primarily working from home. So this is a dramatic shift in a very short time. You know, usually such big trends take decades to happen. And this is happening in, in two years. So um, this will have a major impact. Uh, you know, one is uh, you can now hire anywhere. 
or many companies are willing to hire anywhere. And we're already seeing uh, this trend. You know, we, we are tracking online job ads across the country. And we already see that, for example, uh, tech companies in Silicon Valley are shifting a lot of their job ads towards locations outside of Silicon Valley. So this uh, will create a, a lot of those uh, trends. I, I think another important trend is uh, what's called the donut effect. So businesses that operated in city centers, like next to the big office buildings, are suffering much more because uh, fewer people are uh, coming to the office. And uh, also some people are moving away from city centers because they can get a cheaper housing uh, uh, in further away places. So this kind of the emptying of the middle and the shift to the outskirts of the metro area and even beyond. So that is um, another big uh, trend. So it will uh, have a lot of implications beyond how we work, but also like larger economic effects beyond that. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a big one. I wonder, you're based in Princeton, New Jersey, right? No, actually, I'm in uh, New York. City. Oh, okay. Okay, well, then that's... The, how, how have you seen things uh, process in New York? I mean, do you are, have a lot of people left? Or are there a lot of um, companies that have relocated? Well, uh, some people left, but I, I think the, the biggest impact is all those people who used to come every day to... Right. Uh, you know, downtown and midtown Manhattan for work are, are now are not coming. I, I heard the story of that, like, there was this hot dog truck that used mm. to sell 450 hot dogs before the pandemic every day. And at some point during the pandemic, he was selling 10. So um, this is a, this has been a catastrophe mm-hmm. for businesses, especially food services uh, around the kind of the city center in New York. And do you see, do you see people or companies coming back have a lot of your clients there talked about that much at all, or is it really just going one direction? Well, I think the initial trend is to, uh, of, of more of, of people than companies, is mm-hmm. to move out. But, right. you know, those buildings are there. They are not mm-hmm. going to disappear. So I think what's happening is that as companies are getting out of their leases, they would uh, rent a smaller space because they don't need as much space, and that would lower eventually already starting to and, and will continue to lower office uh, rents, office prices. And and of course, in retail, there is uh, also a, a similar trend. So what could happen is that the prices of, of real estate, of commercial real estate in city centers will drop and that will actually incentivize companies that couldn't afford the price in midtown Manhattan before to, to move in. So, so, you know, I think the those buildings are here to stay. They may, they're definitely going to build fewer in the future, but the amount of, of office space in, in New York is going, is pretty inelastic and someone will eventually come in there. So, mm-hmm. um, so, but I think the, the impact will be in the prices of, yeah. of the real estate. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And as far as other impacts or other, what kind of other trends are you picking up? I imagine that's the big one. Um, yeah, is there anything else? I mean, one very interesting trend that is also related to kind of social issues is 
For example, racial wage gaps before the pandemic kept on uh, increasing, even though uh, many companies are trying to uh, improve the situation, it just kept uh, increasing, uh, partly because uh, the rise of tech in the western part of the country where there are fewer black people there, and so they were not part of the kind of the big increase in that industry. So, you know, uh, we were, we, I hope that the events of 2020 uh, are going to reverse that trend a little and uh, we will see uh, racial wage gaps uh, shrinking. And uh, I know that this is one of the main trends in, in companies is to try to increase the participation of people of color in, in high paying jobs. Um, so that I don't know the answer to that, but uh, this is something we're planning to work on and see if indeed there was a turning point around 2020 in that uh, context. I wonder also if companies that are hiring now nationally, there's probably still issues, hurdles to hiring internationally. But if you hire nationally, if you're located in Silicon Valley or in New York City and you're paying a certain amount for a job and now you're going to hire somebody in Duluth or in wherever, you can get away with paying a lot less. Are you seeing trends going in that direction? So we... We do see, as I said before, uh, Silicon Valley companies are hiring more outside. And I, mm. I suspect that lowering labor cost is partly the motivation for that. It could be that also their motivation is to increase diversity in their companies because you can't find the many black uh, software developers in, in uh, San Jose, but uh, there are many in Washington DC and Atlanta mm-hmm. and Charlotte. So, uh, so that may be another motivation. Mm. Very interesting. Um, and as far as the, any other effects of having people living more rurally, um, potentially more suburban, have you thought about that at all? The effects of that? Well, the prices around, for yeah. example, around New York City in the suburbs and even areas like one, two hours away from yeah. the city are uh, having the time of their lives. <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, and, and you know, it may create like a, a virtuous cycle that, you know, um, professionals from New York City will move to some of the rural areas and make them uh, more attractive to other professionals. And we will see like a, a really big transformation of some of those uh, rural communities. Mm. Uh, I think that uh, could be happen, happening mm. as well. Yeah. Any any particular rural com- or, or communities that you might have seen benefit yet, other than Miami, I, Florida, which we all know. About. <laughs> well, I know that the Hudson Valley sure, uh, is yeah. uh, seeing uh, a lot, and in some parts in Connecticut, that are closer to New York, uh, but even two hours away from New York City on the Hudson Valley, I think mm-hmm. even there they are seeing some benefits. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm in Connecticut and I left New York City last year during COVID and uh, with the intent of buying a place up here. And, and, and I'm up in New Haven about two hours. Yeah, about two hours north. And yep. the price has caught up and, and the supply of houses has gone down and, and it's been a very tough market. So I have bought it. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, so I can absolutely speak to that. Yeah. I like to ask people, especially economists, is there, what, what is it that you're most concerned about that has you kind uh, kind of up at night, and, and if anything? Well, I, I am. A, I think, like everyone, is concerned about the polarization in the U.S., and I think uh, 
as an economist and as a labor economist, I, I think a lot of it is driven by growing regional inequality that I think a lot of the a lot of the benefits of uh, in the last decade or two, especially uh, from the boom in uh, tech, is concentrated in uh, a few locations, uh, and the rest of the country is left behind. And I, I think uh, I don't know how um, this uh, trend would stop because it's not. I, I mean, th those kind of areas are becoming more and more attractive, and uh, the places that are left behind are becoming less attractive for young, uh, educated people. So it's kind of a, a trend that I'm not sure could um, easily be stopped. And I think that's a big contributor to the, to the polarization that we see in the country overall. So, so that's, okay, for example, the Midwest, uh, you know, if you look at the states that are like next to the Great Lakes, 50, 70 years ago, they were among the richest in the country. And now they are on average among the poorest, uh, not the poorest, but getting there. So, so those, uh, those trends are, are concerning me because partly because I don't know what could stop them. So well, remote I, work, right? I mean, wouldn't that be one thing? Like if you I, can live cheaply in Detroit or wherever and... So if uh, if that happens, I, I, that could help. But the question are people who can choose to live anywhere, wouldn't they choose some like a, a vacation destination uh, in an attractive area or like maybe college town where there's a lot of like activity, as a social, cultural. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how many will choose to go to like old manufacturing towns that are in a decline. But yeah, I think remote work may move the needle a little. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast. Maybe in, in closing, you can tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and your research. And I'll put that in the show notes as well, if there's any URLs or anything like that. I don't remember the URL, but they can hmm. Google my name and sure. uh, there, are, there is a bio page. I'm also a, an op-ed contributor at uh, Forbes, so they can find right. cool. some of my pieces uh, there. Nice. All right. I'll put those links up. Okay. Wonderful. God, Lebanon, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Thank you all for being with us, for listening, and we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you, Nathaniel. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.